ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердце нашей земле. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's podcast is a digression from the usual fare, since it is only tangentially about Eurasia. The reason is that after reading Yasha Levine's Surveillance Valley, The Secret Military History of the Internet, I just had to interview him. It's not just because Yasha is a friend of the show. It's because his investigation into the Internet's history shows that its creation was part of a general effort to develop methods of counterinsurgency. And this story fundamentally changed the way I understand the internet and its history. Namely, data collection, surveillance, and population management were there from the get-go. And as we all know, many of these efforts are now privatized in the hands of multinational corporate monopolies like Google and Facebook. Yasha emphatically shows that the libertine utopianism we ascribe to the internet is nothing but a ruse. The internet's real history, as Yasha tells it, unmasks it as the basis for a dystopic world. We also managed to talk a bit about Russia and the Soviets' failure to create its own internet as well. Yasha Levine is a Russian-born American investigative journalist and a founding editor of The Exiled. His work has been published in The Baffler, Pando Daily, Wired, The Nation, Penthouse, and many others. He's the author of Surveillance Valley, The Secret Military History, of the internet, published by Public Affairs Books. Here's Yasha Levine. Your book, Surveillance Valley, um, is really, and I was trying to struggle with a word, but it is, I think, dystopic uh, in many respects. It's a dystopic revisionist history of the internet. So I thought we'd start by having you lay out what the standard story is that we usually hear about the internet, and how does your work push back and challenge that story? Um, yeah, well, the standard story is, is pretty syrupy. Um, you know, the standard story is that the internet um, started out as this military project um, that was uh, designed to come up with a technology with a telecommunications and networking technology that could survive a nuclear attack. And so in a way that you could take out parts of the, of the infrastructure and the communication system would still work. So it would have to be decentralized. And so that's where the, the initial push um, um, for the internet came from in like the popular telling of that. But then the story quickly shifts and, and moves away from the military applications of it. Um, and uh, goes into the counterculture because, um, as you hear, as you'll read in most histories, you know you'll you'll find out that the engineers who were building this technology, they were military contractors working on a Pentagon project, but they were 
radical in, in their thinking about the world. Um, and they, um, they lived in the Bay Area. They smoked pot. They dropped acid. Uh, they listened to the Grateful Dead and, you know, Jefferson Airplane. Um, and they were working on this military project, but they were using it to their own ends. Um, and they believed in, this, in, in the creating of a new world, a, a world, you know, a decentralized world where sort of the old, um, old politics and um, had no space. Um, and so they wanted to use this network, networking technology to create a new utopian world that would be decentralized, that would feature direct democracy, that would have these counterculture principles built into it. And so they saw this, um, they basically, you know, took the military for a ride, in essence. And they hijacked this, this, um, this project and they created um, the ARPANET. And then that ARPANET evolved and through different stages. And then it kind of popped out, popped out of the military and into the private sector. And then it became the internet. And then it became Google. It became Facebook. It became um, all the things that we use now. So that's the standard story in a nutshell. So how does your book challenge like? What's, the, what's the, your counter narrative to this? Parts of that narrative are true. Uh, parts of the narrative that you know the internet came out of a of a networking uh, project to design a decentralized network that could survive a nuclear attack, that is true in part. It's also true in part that uh, some of the uh, engineers who worked on this project dropped acid, smoked pot, and uh, went to Grateful Dead shows. But there's this whole other aspect to um, this project that doesn't really get covered in, in, in most histories. And as I dug into the archives, I found one thing that really popped out at me immediately almost. It was the counterinsurgency um, side of the internet and of, uh, and of networking technology. And so the, the whole project um, and the agency that it came out of, ARPA, which is the Advanced Research Projects Agency, we now know it as DARPA, which has a D attached to the front of it for defense. Um, it was, a, was at the time a counterinsurgency agency. It was an agency tasked with developing modern ways to fight, counter, to fight insurgencies. And um, the ARPANET uh, and the internet came out of that, uh, came out of that project in essence. And so my history uh, sort of rolls back the tape a little bit and, 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 and starts during the Vietnam War and looks at how um, counterinsurgency and surveillance and the desire to manage, uh, to, to create new tools that allowed the Pentagon and the military to, to fight new kinds of wars, new kinds of wars that were happening all over the globe, how, how that played a part in the development of internet technology. And, and how, what were they trying to do uh, in terms of using this type of uh, the network, but also this need to collect data and, and identify how did this fit into their the ID their developing methods of fighting counterinsurgency? Well, you know, there's a couple of different things, right? So to understand the ARPAN, it actually maybe even helps to go back a little bit in, in history to look at Sage, which was the first early warning radar defense system uh, that the United States built, and that system showed that you could cr use computers and use these early networking uh, technology to reduce the world down to a, a model. So you could have an analyst sit at a terminal, at a computer terminal, um, hundreds or sometimes thousands away, miles away from the border, right? And, and, and use radar technology and use computer networking technology and use early networking, uh, early desktop computer technology to show what was going on thousands of miles away, right? To watch airspace thousands of miles away. And so 
the idea, uh, the, the top level idea for the ARPANET and for in general for networking technology and, and computer technology at the time was to, to reduce that down to not just aircraft, not just airspace, but, but uh, the battle, any kind of battlefield um, or to human societies, to political movements, to people on a personal level. So that if you could watch the airspace like that, if you, <clears throat> if you could watch airspace like that, um, why not? watch uh, a country like that why not watch a city like that why not watch a person like that and so the ability to do that was not there at the time in the 60s uh, but that was a, a kind of a, a, a guiding idea behind the push for developing uh, advanced networking and, and, and computer process and information processing technology at the time one of the things that really stands out and that struck me, and, and this goes from, you know, the beginning that the history of the use of punch cards and other tabulation machines, I mean, beginning with the census in the, in the United States, I think in 1920s or maybe it was the 1910 census, and then this history of IBM and the use of punch cards to categorize Jews during in Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. And then also, again, the, the history you draw out is really to, you know, you have this great line that you took from Starship Troopers to open up your book, uh, to fight the bug, we must understand the bug. And here that spoke to me when you're talking about in Vietnam to know what the insurgent is in terms of who the person is, their culture, collect all of this data as a way to not only fight them, but also prevent insurgency in the future. Um, so talk about more about how this this data and the role of computers and the transfer of this data is necessary for in this counterinsurgency uh, uh, methods. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, the counterinsurgency is an, is a poses it's a certain set of problems that traditional warfare um, doesn't. Right. If it's an insurgency, the enemy, the combatants, they don't march information. They don't wear uniforms. They don't they don't um, they're not they don't use tanks. They're blended in with the general population from which they come. And so in order to fight that kind of war that was spreading all across the world, you know, the, the, the Pentagon was looking at a world where it was fighting not just this Cold War with the Soviet Union, you know, with nukes and, and a kind of a standoff, but also these periphery wars, right, where uh, whether it's in, in Southeast Asia or in uh, Latin America, you had these smaller wars. And so and those were very frequently insurgencies. Um, and so in order to fight that new kind of war, you needed a new kind of weapon. You needed to be able to look at a society and essentially figure out who's the enemy, what makes someone who's not an enemy, what turns them into an enemy, wh why are they rebelling? Um, and so it was thought that if you had the tools that could allow you to study societies in that way, you could fight this new kind of warfare and win. And so there's a, there's a whole range of, uh, you know, ideological uh, sort of ideas ideological biases built into that kind of idea, that kind of conception of the world, right? Because what it, it looks at, let's say, the war in Vietnam, uh, and it sees, you know, the Vietnamese as who are rebelling against, you know, the colonial rulers, it's essentially an anti-colonial struggle, right? Um, and they're seeing it not as something that is ideological, right? But as something that could be managed. It's a, it's a managerial problem. Um, if you're just, you look at, you know, Vietnamese society as some kind of uh, manufacturing process almost, right? You could see where there are inefficiencies. You could see where there are problems in that process. And if you have a, you know, a powerful enough x-ray machine to, to look into that society and to diagnose the, its problems, uh, 
and then and then fix those processes you know make them make them more efficient you could essentially regulate or manage strife out of existence and so it was it was um so you know it was seen almost as a kind of progressive idea that you know you create these tools they allow you to uh study societies but it was a progressive idea because well if you if you could if you could uh you know prevent insurgencies from happening in the future in these societies or if you could uh get rid of the reasons that are that that are leading to this insurgency it's better than bombing these people right it's be- better than uh dropping bombs on them it's better than killing them so it's almost it, it's an elitist way of looking at the world where you could uh if you just have enough information and if you if you if you if you have enough um if you have enough data uh you could you could fix the world in that way so it's a very technocratic idea of the world it's a very um it's a very you know managerial uh conception of how of how societies run and and of just of politics in general yeah and this is one of the things that one of the things that really struck me looking at it in terms of what is the internet's place and in, you know cold war history um you know the as you as you point out the development of arpanet was to address basically two large issues one to pr- improve american military command and control to deal with any you know, a potential Soviet attack of nuclear weapons, and then this this larger project to improve methods of counterinsurgency abroad, and also, as you point out, at home, it begins to be applied. So, given this this history of uh, of the internet that you've presented, how do you understand, say, the Cold War now after doing this research? Where does the internet fit into it? Well, yeah, the internet is very much a, a product of the Cold War. Um, I mean, very directly. Uh, you know, every all the military uh, institutions that gave birth to it are, uh, were a product of the Cold War. Uh, I mean, but you could say that a lot of you know about modern America and just about you know modern American institutions. They're all a product of the Cold War on some level. Uh, I, I mean, you know, there's a, I, I don't write about this in the book, but I do know that there's there's some evidence that the project, uh, command and control research project, that was um, run by ARPA in, in, starting in the early 1960s to develop modern networking uh, technology uh, was potentially triggered uh, by similar programs that were being discussed and thought about in the Soviet Union. And so I know that a Kennedy advisor um, said that, like, look, if, if these networking plans that the Soviet Union is, is considering are going are to be brought, going to be realized, you know, America would be like, quote, finished. <laughs> and so... There is a there is an aspect of this of the internet's history where it was actually seen as playing catch up with the Soviet Union uh, and trying to stay ahead of this kind of uh, networking cybernetic arms race that was that the CIA and the United States thought that America could very well lose um, and of course it's part of this inflated right uh, history of inflating the threat from the Soviet Union and uh, history of inflating um, the advanced state of, of uh, Soviet uh, weapons and de- defense systems, right, to to sort of to drive uh, military development and, uh, and military research in America. So, but but on a larger level, I think this idea of you know of of the ARPANET and creating these systems that could sit on top of the world and watch it in real time, like a radar system would for airplanes, but 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 to do that for uh, uh, societies and political movements was very much a part of the larger. Cold War conflict, right? And and you know, internationally and domestically, America was fighting a war, right, against uh, left wing politics, left wing political movements. Whether it was the Soviet Union or whether it was smaller wars uh, in in Latin America or Southeast Asia, this was this was the this was the struggle, 
that, that America was engaged in, right? And so the cybernetic ideology that underpinned the creation of the internet was seen as a kind of alternative to, to, to socialism or to left-wing ideas, right? It's this idea that they were rebelling against capitalism or colonialism or whatever it was they were rebelling against. It wasn't a political problem. It wasn't an ideological problem. It wasn't an ideological problem. It was a managerial problem. And so, and so, I mean, I know that, you know, Ethel de Solapool is this very interesting guy who played a big role in pushing this information theory and information management theory um, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and he worked on the ARPANET and he was one of the first uh, people to uh, apply computer modeling and uh, voter, vo voter profiling to, uh, to uh, drive political campaigns. And he worked on uh, John F. Kennedy's first presidential campaign. Uh, the kind of stuff that Cambridge Analytica is now accused of doing. He, you know, he was, he pioneered this stuff. And so if you read his writings, he says, you know, that secrecy, uh, is one of the most destabilizing, uh, problems in, in the world because it, it, secrecy hides things from technocrats like himself, right? It, it prevents a good manager from understanding what's really going on. And for a manager to really to do it, to do his or her job properly, uh, they need all the information they can get. So creating systems that uh, destroy secrecy, that make uh, societies transparent uh, in order so they can be managed better. This was seen as a goal and, and it was seen as a counterweight to left wing ideology. I mean, this is in, in America in particular at the time. So it's all tied up um, with the Cold War and. Uh, the ideological struggle that America was uh, saw itself as being engaged in. Yeah, this goes to another issue, just because you know, because information and knowledge is so important to the functioning of the internet. You know, uh, m people are looking for a way to you know maintain secrecy, right? That thing you just said was seen as destabilizing, uh, and one of those ways of of that people have turned to is the use of the Tor browser, um, and you you know, argue quite convincingly about what the nature of the Tor browser is. So what is Tor and, and what, is your, what is your criticism of it? Well, Tor is this kind of a decentralized VPN, essentially, right? Um, it was developed starting in the late 90s and early 2000s uh, by the U.S. Navy, actually at the Navy base that's just about, you know, 10 minutes away from uh, the White House in Washington, D.C. Um, and it was designed uh, and, and developed in order to um, solve a kind of authority problem that uh, intelligence agencies uh, were uh, experiencing on the internet. So the internet is, the way that it's structured is that it is somewhat transparent in, in, in the way that information is routed. So if you are sitting uh, in, your, in, your, in your home and you're, you know, plug in a, a, a URL, you know, your ISP, right, that's knows where you're going it, it's because it has to send your data packets to a certain uh to a certain address right so it knows which sites you're going to which sites you're visiting right and the sites that you're visiting likewise know where you're coming from know the isp that you're coming from they know your ip address and so if you are a, a cia agent and you're using the internet but you don't want people to know that you're a cia agent let's say you're sitting in uh beirut in a hotel room and you want to log into your, you know, mail.cia.gov account and check your email, right? And, and, and you, if you do that from a hotel room, 
everyone will see that you're going to the CIA uh, email uh, website, right? And so you'll, they'll know that you are a CIA agent. Or if you're an FBI agent doing an open source investigation and you're trying to, you know, infiltrate some forum, let's say it's an animal rights forum, and you're trying to pre pretend like you're just some guy that you're interested in animal rights and activism and you want to join up, you know, if a, if a, if, if, if a webmaster of that forum looks at, you know, where you came from, it looks at the IP address that you've registered from, they can trace it back to some kind of FBI IP address, you know, your cover is blown. And so Tor uh, was technology that solved that problem. So it disconnected uh, your, the origins of your traffic to its destination. And so, but, but that system would not work if only um, American federal agents used Tor, right? So if, if, only, if only spies and cops used this VPN, everybody would know, what, oh, they popped out of this VPN. They know that, okay, they're a cop or they're a fed. And so in order for the system to truly work, to, to, to truly anonymize and let spies hide on the internet, it would have to be uh, handed over to the general public. It would have to be used by as wide an array as, of users as possible. So, you know, if you hackers, you know, child abuse pornographers, uh, uh, criminals, uh, or just regular people who are worried about their privacy, journalists, um, dissidents in foreign countries, you know, as wide an array of, of users as possible, you know, the, the more the better. Because then in that crowd, a CIA agent or an FBI agent can hide very comfortably, like, like in a crowded square. And so that's what the Tor project is. Um, but there is another element that, um, about the Tor project that became useful to the U.S. government. Um, and that is its, its ability to get around censorship and to get around internet blocks. And so it was developed by the U.S. government to hide spies. But other, part, other parts of the U.S. government began to fund it and develop it because it allowed Radio Free Asia and, uh, to get around uh, Chinese uh, censorship of the Internet. And so it was seen as this dual-use dual thing where it could all, not only hide your, hide your identity, but could also allow uh, dissidents in foreign countries uh, to get around their state censorship systems on the Internet. So it became essentially became kind of part of the American soft power, you know, foreign policy ideology. Exactly. I mean, so the, so the ability of another country to control its domestic internet space um, was seen as a, as, a, as a kind of a threat to American uh, you know, imperial power, right? It's almost like, uh, like, a, like a trade embargo or something where uh, a country says, no, we're not going to take your goods. So the way that you, it was seen as something almost like a hostile act. That how can you prevent um, not just you know American information from getting in there, but potentially that means you are preventing American companies from getting in there, and you're preventing um, you know you're now all of a sudden limiting uh, business opportunities from for 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 the American businesses, and so um, it, the it, Tor became a tool in this kind of new soft power tool set as a as a as a digital crowbar that 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 the U.S. government could use to jimmy open uh, some of these firewalls uh, and and allow information that these states did not want to uh, uh, allow into their, into their countries to, 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 to allow them to kind of sneak through these little holes. Does the American security services have a way to, uh, you, in, through Tor, like, does it have the keys to unlock Tor to discover people's IP addresses? Like, is there a back door for them? I have not seen any evidence of a back door, but there are ways, look, there are, and I, there are weaknesses in the way that the system is built. 
um, in, in that, you know, there are, Tor depends on this uh, network of um, essentially routing points that it, it bounces your traffic around to hide it, right? Uh, kind of like a kind of a, uh, one of the, a shell game, essentially, that it plays with your traffic. Um, and if uh, someone controls enough of those nodes, then it makes it easier for them to unmask you. Um, there are also ability to do the, what they call timing attacks, which is that essentially look at look at the ne look at the network, look at the Tor network. If you can observe the whole Tor network, like the NSA can, and if you can look at when someone pops into the network and when something pops out of the network, you can correlate that uh, that that by the timing because you know there's a slight delay and you can calculate the delay. And with some probability, you can with very good probability you can unmask people using that method. And so. Against U.S. power, right? Against against something like an, an adversary like the NSA, Tor uh, on its own would 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 not be uh, very useful, especially if they're looking for you, right? Now, but but against a weaker adversary that doesn't have that doesn't have the ability to surveil entire whole portions of the internet, of course, it's much more effective. Uh, but of course, Tor is also very effectively and easily blocked. Uh, because Tor has a signature that's e very recognizable, and so China and Iran were, you know, ma major um, targets of the Tor project and major targets of, sort of American soft, po soft power on the internet, soft power programs on the internet. They very effectively block Tor, and you can't use Tor in those countries. Now, given given things like Tor and the concentration of not only you know access to the internet, you know, United States, I think, is pretty much dominated by two companies, it seems, uh, and also through the you know m corporate conglomerates like you know Facebook and Google, is internet privacy just fool's gold? The search for it. Well, I mean, I think it's important to understand when we talk about privacy, who are we afraid of? What is the, who do we want to remain private from? Uh, because I think people just kind of conflate privacy into this general fear of, of something happening, of someone watching on the internet, into, into this hazy, just fear of Big Brother, right? Um, look, can you ever be, can you be private from intelligence agencies, you know, in, in, especially, let's say, in a, you know, in, in a democratic somewhat democratic country like America where there, there's an, there are intelligence agencies and they're empowered to spy on people and not let and, and, and have them and do that in secret, right? Um, you know, to protect the national interest or whatever. Can you hide from these agencies? The answer is probably not because their job is to spy on you. The job of the NSA is to spy on you and not just on you, but to uh, break every possible encryption that exists in the world, <laughs> to make the world transparent. That's what you know, uh, w the reason why NSA exists, and of course it also exists to protect the communication uh, of, uh, of the United States, of the national security um, apparatus. But, but you know, can you hide yourself from spies? Probably not. Can you hide yourself from um, your ISP, right? From Yes, you, you can probably use Tor to hide yourself from the ISP. Can Tor hide you from Google? No, Tor cannot protect you from your privacy from Google because as soon as you use Google, uh, usually, most people use Google by logging into Google services to their Gmail. Uh, you know, same goes for Facebook. You log into Facebook with your you know, personal information. It does not matter if you use Tor because even if you access Google or Facebook through Tor, you still log in and they know who you are and their entire business model depends on, on spying on you. 
Uh, and so, and so Torah does not protect you from Silicon Valley. And Tor, you know, might protect you if you're, let's say, in Russia and you're a, an opposition activist of some kind. Tor might protect you from the, from the Russian government, from the FSB. It might, but it also singles you out. Um, you know, maybe, you know, then there's, of course, the chat app called Signal that everyone uses to hide themselves. Using that might protect your communications, but it also singles you out because it's pretty easy to see when someone logs into, uses these apps and uses these services and, and, and flags you, right? for surveillance. And I know that there were um, documents that some of the documents that were revealed by Edward Snowden showed that the NSA tagged everyone who even visited the Tor uh, browser uh, webpage and, and, and marked them for increased surveillance. And so, um, you know, this goes, this of course isn't even, we're not even talking about the fact that the U.S. government funds Tor and funds a lot of these privacy technologies completely. Um, and so how could a technology that supposed to protect you from the U.S. government. Why would the U.S. government fund something that um, limits its own power? Um, uh, and so I think when we talk about privacy, we have to be very careful about what we mean by that because privacy depends, you know, on, 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 who, you're, on, who, on who you're afraid of, who you're, who you're trying to hide yourself from. Uh, and so I think it is a, a, a kind of fool's, it is fool's gold uh, in the sense that as far as the conversation today is concerned about privacy, it's, 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 everything is kind of rolled into one and conflated with government surveillance. Well, and this is the thing, I think, um, you know, like you said, if you're using Facebook or you're using Google, you're, you're going to log into their services. So it's in, in many respects, the surveillance has also been privatized and these companies' business models are completely reliant on collecting information about you and determining behavior from it. So given, given that, given the fact that the internet was started as a government funded project, it was then privatized. And, and that private companies are basically on the front line of surveillance in, in the broadest way. What is the current relationship between companies like Google and Facebook to the American military and intelligence complex? Um, the, the connections are, are complex on one level, on one hand, but they're simple on another. Um, you know, they are, they're private companies, but they function frequently as extensions of the U.S. government or the, the larger national security state. So they're the privatized versions of it. So look, you know, Google um, is one of the most important um, sources of, of information for, for intelligence agencies. Um, and it's uh, like I, James Clapper, um, after Edward Snowden's uh, leak, said that, you know, uh, this, the Google, the information they get from Google is the most important um, source of intelligence that that they use for uh, White House intelligence briefs, for instance. So information they get from there. So the NSA and the U.S. government does not run its own surveillance network. It taps into private platforms, uh, platforms like Google, platforms like Facebook, platforms like Twitter, um, AT&T, Apple, you know, Yahoo, eBay, Amazon. These are all things private private platforms that we use on an everyday uh, basis and we we do everything through them right we shop we date we uh find restaurants through them we uh you know whistleblowers communicate through them <laughs> and these are private networks yet they're completely integrated into uh America's national security state um in in both legal and less legal ways and so 
the connections are uh, very close. And and look, and if you look at, for instance, the 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 history of Google, um, Google, of course, is a giant company that that does so much on the internet and uh, underlies so much of our of our internet experience. But Google came out of a U.S. government grant. Um, it, it's the research that launched Google's um, search engine uh, came out of a DARPA program, uh, a DARPA program that spanned multiple universities, and that was designed to um, create new kinds of technologies to organize information on the internet. And that that grant, that research grant, spawned not just Google but uh, several other um, um, s search companies. And Google just became the one that won out and became the one that was com commercially successful and the one that we use today and we forget all the other ones. But so Google is itself a product of the US government and, and the product of the exact same agency that actually launched the internet. And so there are a lot of connections. And of course now Google is a military contractor. It has been a military contractor since you know, the year 2003. It's the earliest that, has, that I could find. Selling that search technology back to the US government selling it to the NSA, selling it to the CIA, uh, so that the CIA and the NSA could search the, their own data in much the same way that we searched the internet. And so, you know, that contracting only increased as, as Google grew and, and added new products and added new services uh, um, to, its, uh, to its toolkit. And so, like today, you know, just in the past few months, we've, there was a big um, scandal, right, about Google being involved in... Um, in a Pentagon project that to develop artificial intelligence uh, systems that could do visual recognitions for American drones. And so this is just a recent scandal and uh, Google, uh, you know, it was such a scandal that internally that Google was forced to say that it wouldn't be renewing this contract. Um, so that's just, just the latest example of, uh, of Google's, of Silicon Valley's uh, work with the, uh, uh, the U.S. government and, um, and the Pentagon and, and things like that. Now, over the last 10 years, you know, the image of social media as a political platform has, has undergone a pretty dramatic shift. I mean, you just, you can just think, you know, 10 years ago, a little bit more, 15 years ago, um, it was once hailed as, as, as a, a means for liberation, like per, you know, during the Arab Spring or during the Maidan in Ukraine. This was the internet was going to, you know, usher in a kind of democratic revolution on a global scale. But now, and particularly in the last couple of years, uh, the, the view of social media and the internet to, to some extent too is increasingly seen as a weapon of political manipulation and even a, a means to degradate democratic societies. So how do you think we should understand the role and the place of social media in our world? And what do you make of this dramatic shift in how it's viewed? Yeah, no, it's, it's actually been very interesting to see that, right? Because you've, with Donald Trump totally ruined the internet. Uh, he's been a horrible, he's been, a, Donald Trump has been a disaster, a public relations disaster for Silicon Valley. Uh, because suddenly the internet wasn't being used to promote progressive elements, uh, in, you know, around the world and to, and to topple, uh, repressive regimes. Suddenly it was used to elect Donald Trump <laughs> by, you know, by, by one of these totalitarian regimes, uh, right, uh, by Russia. And so suddenly the internet was weaponized against America and suddenly everybody woke up to the fact that, wait a minute, the internet and social media, there aren't these like utopian places. They're actually private platforms owned by 
corporate monopolies. <laughs> and these corporate monopolies are in the business of spying on you, profiling you, and then selling that information to the highest bidder in order to influence you. This is the business of social media uh, networks, right? This is, this is Facebook. This is the, the, the light of democracy in the Middle East, right? The light of democracy in Russia in 2011. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, I think people have, are seeing the internet a little bit closer for what it is, which is just a telecommunication system owned by giant corporations. And that telecommunication system can be used in all sorts of ways. Uh, but because it's owned by private companies, who have a very specific business model, uh, and that business model is based on basically leasing influence, leasing access to their users and for, for the sake of influence, they're going to be used in a certain way. Um, and they're going to be used to influence people because that's what they're, that's what built, they're built for. They're not built for democratic uh, organizing. They're not, built, they're not democratic at all because um, Google is not a democratic entity. Uh, Facebook is not a democratic entity and on these platforms we use as users have almost no power uh, we have no power to influence anything and we and we are bound by the designs of these platforms that these companies created and they created that to make money not to do anything else and so uh, I think it's important Trump has been disaster for Silicon Valley but I think on a bigger level he's probably been good because suddenly people are realizing that wait a minute this internet thing it's it's a lot darker than we ever than we ever envisioned or than we ever were led to believe. My only fear is that, you know, people are pretending like as long as you get rid of sort of these malicious forces that are using these technologies to to influence us, basically getting rid of Russia or getting rid of other countries that are using these platforms, that this is somehow going to fix the problem. But yeah, but I but I think it's a total disaster for for social media. One that I, one that I'm actually been kind of uh, very happy about. So you know, so what's interesting about this is it is to seeing how proponents of, of of a free and democratic internet and and its role in democracy, how these proponents have have completely turned, and are now speaking in a in a in a in a totally different way about 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 the internet and about the danger it poses to democracy. You know, if you remember, Hillary Clinton um, was the architect of so-called internet freedom policy, uh, which which in which America would promote a unregulated um, uh, internet uh, platform because it would spread democracy and equality and freedom around the world. And it part of that policy would, of course, to, to go after and to demonize and, and marginalize any country that attempted to place any kind of you know, sovereign or national controls over their own in domestic internet space. So, so Hillary Clinton was very critical of Russia, very critical of China uh, for for censoring the internet. And of course, after the election, when the internet was used to deny her the presidency, she completely did a you know a one eighty. And so, on Rachel Maddow, she said, uh, "We're going to go after these provocateurs, these Russians posing as Americans, these content farms in Macedonia, these thousands of trolls." these tens of thousands of bots, we have every right to have a vigorous debate in America, but we don't, but we don't want it to be interfered with and suborned by Putin and his allies. This is, this is what Hillary Clinton told Rachel Maddow. A few minutes ago, you, you mentioned the, the, that the, the 
American development of the internet might have been in response to uh, similar developments in the Soviet Union. And we do know uh, there's been some history written about the, the development of the internet in the Soviet Union in the 1970s and 1980s that's been recently published. So I thought I'd have you uh, compare uh, and talk about the differences in terms of how the, the, the reasons for the American development of the internet and the Soviet development of the internet and why did, say, the Americans succeed and the Soviets fail? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. Um, I mean, yeah, an interesting question that I kind of have some problems with, actually. Because, you know, I think it takes as as a baseline that the creation of the Internet was was something that was, um, that is beneficial and actually a good thing. That that the failure to create the Internet uh, by the Soviet Union, although it it tried to create some kind of national network, and that, of course, that that, that project failed, that this failure marks some kind of flaw uh, in, you know, the Soviet system and, and the Soviet po- political system and, and, and economic system. Um, it kind of has this assumption, you know, almost like a, like a, I don't know if it's American exceptionalism or some kind of liberal exceptionalism, but it's this a sense that like, well, wh- why do they fail and we succeed? <laughs> and so, and it, it's as if, you know, the implicit the implication is that building the internet and, and locking people into this um, computer system uh, of technological power and is something beneficial or something that you actually want to have happened. Um, uh, you know, I, as we, maybe this is true. Uh, this kind of thinking uh, was, you know, it was easier to digest. You know, even a decade ago or even just a few years ago. But I think a lot of people will seeing where the internet is headed and how it could be used to influence American politics and how it's led to this concentration of power. Um, you wonder whether or not, whether the internet was such a good thing after all, right? Um, and so, you know, look, the, there are big differences between uh, uh, the way that technology developed uh, and was then realized in the Soviet Union and the United States. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a historian of, 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 uh, of, Soviet te- you know, technology, or uh, the, uh, I'm, I'm not an expert in that. But you know, f- for me, uh, the the far more interesting question uh, about the internet here in America and the failure to build a kind of internet in the Soviet Union is um, is why did a authoritarian police state like the Soviet Union why did it lag behind America in creating what a surveillance system, right? Um, everyone, you know, th- when you think of the Soviet Union, you think of this gray, depressing place where everybody is paranoid, everybody's watching each other, and the state itself is extremely scared of its own uh, citizens. It's scared of its own people. It's watching them for every kind of deviation, right, and throwing them into, into camps and gulags. There's a spy behind, behind every couch, essentially, right? Why didn't the Soviet Union build, or st- at least seek to build, or try to build a surveillance system, right? That would that that would combine everything that that was happening in the Soviet Union, from phones to whatever, right? To and 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 centralize it in a in a surveillance system. Why did America uh, create such a system, and, and the Soviet Union did not? And the same goes for China, actually. You know, if why did these authoritarian, you know, uh, police states? not create the internet, uh, not create the global system of surveillance that the internet is. Um, 
I think that's a far more interesting question, actually. And I don't. Do you have an answer? No. No, it is an interest. It is an interesting question. I mean, when I was, you know, the little I know about what I've read about the history of the development and the attempt to develop a, a network within the Soviet Union is that it was primarily driven by trying to make their economic system more efficient. Whereas in the in the American case, it was it was a means to fight war. <laughs> no, no, and it was a it was a it was a it was a means to, of surveilling societies. I mean, look, we have to remember that. You know, this is something that we have to, I, I want to always highlight when I talk about this. The internet didn't become a surveillance system only later on. Um, it was, it was seen as a system that could, that could surveil, uh, populations and, and, and build dossiers on people and make them easily accessible from the very beginning. And the first, uh, known use of the internet, of the ARPANET, to surveil Americans in America was in the early 70s. Right, 1972, when millions of files on American uh, anti-war protesters and civil rights activists were digitized uh, from their from from you know from their where they were on uh, punch cards and they were on uh, these sort of magnetic spools that had to be shipped before from from office to office if you wanted uh, data on somebody you had to actually put this giant you know spool of magnetic tape in the mail, right? The ARPANET and tools connected to the ARPANET allowed the digitization of that information and then Im immediate um, sharing of surveillance files between the White House, the NSA, the CIA, the FBI. And so it was used to spy on Americans almost from the very beginning. I mean, this is the, the ARPANET went online in 1969. Three years later, it was put to use spying on Americans. And so there was, there was an aspect to the ARPANET about, you know, helping the military manages operations better and help you know and and in increasing the efficiency of of uh various uh processes that were happening that, that in the army but it was seen as primarily a surveillance network and and that is yes that you're right i mean that's not the sense that i get from reading his, the histories of soviet networking and, and soviet cybernetics uh, efforts they're actually about making the economy more efficient and, and maybe that's the failure, right? I mean, maybe that's maybe that's the answer. Maybe if maybe if um, you know if uh, what Viktor Glushkov uh, uh, proposed not a system of uh, regulating uh, Soviet economy and Soviet manufacturing, but proposed a system of of Soviet surveillance that that put a bug, uh, you know, on every on every Soviet citizen. Maybe that uh, proposal would have you know would have sailed through. With uh, flying colors and have been adopted at every level, right? <laughs> and so, I, I, yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting question, and I think that you really have to get away from uh, a utopian conception of the internet in order to to look at to explore this to explore this question uh, truthfully and honestly. I mean, one of the things that one of the problems that I find found with um, you know Slavi Grovich has great uh, amazing scholarship about. Um, the history of Soviet cybernetics and Soviet networking. Um, but one of the problems I have with this analysis uh, is that he kind of uh, takes it as a given that networking uh, flattens power and, and, and creates a self-regulating system, right? That there's a, that there's a kind of a decentralized, liberalizing, liberalizing politics built into networking. And that the failure of the Soviet Union to adopt this technology was actually a resistance by the elite uh, 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 to decentralized power, that they didn't want to give up their own personal power and to uh, sort of like uh, flatten, flatten hierarchies and things like that. 
Um, that analysis doesn't ring true because, well, so the internet came out of the Pentagon and was adopted as a standard for um, operational networks in the Pentagon starting in the 1970s. And as far as I know, adoption of internet protocols uh, for telecommunications within the Pentagon didn't make it more liberal or more democratic. I don't know of any histories that, that uh, or an any analyses of the, of the Pentagon that claim that the Pentagon became uh, more democratic under Reagan uh, in the Reagan years or something like that. And so I, I don't see that, you know, there is no democracy built into networking. There is no, that is a, that is a, a very ideological um, idea that, that um, I think uh, prevents people from really, I think, maybe uh, analyzing what really happened in the Soviet Union or why it failed. So over the last decade, we've seen, you know, cyber warfare become, you know, basically integral to the military toolbox. Uh, you know, you have the, the U.S. and the Israelis using cyber warfare against the Iranian nuclear program. You have Russia using cyber warfare against Estonia and in Georgia. Uh, and then, of course, we have the whole development of this, you know, information war warfare uh, panic, but also industry. So what do you make of, uh, of all of these things in light of your book? Well, you know, I mean, look, information warfare is not a new idea, right? It's just that the, that the Internet is, is, a new, is, is, is a new kind of uh, telecommunications infrastructure, a global telecommunications infrastructure that allows, uh, in essence, anyone, for anyone anywhere in the world to immediately reach anyone else anywhere in the world, right, through these ne connected networks. And so, of course, it's going to be used as, as a way of, um, you know, broadcasting power. Of course, it's going to be used by states in some kind of capacity to, um, to project their influence and power. Uh, and, and it's going to be used in conjunction with uh, military campaigns and other kind of, you know, uh, uh, sort of more soft power uh, campaigns and things like that. So, I mean, that's not surprising. Um, again, I think it's only surprising if we have a naive utopian view of the internet that we think it's this, you know, basically a hippie commune, a digital hippie commune where everyone else respects each other. And it should be surprising, right, that, that information warfare exists. Um, my, my critical assessment of cyber warfare and, and especially the, the recent hysteria over cyber warfare is that it is a world where... Um, you know, regular people like you and me uh, have, have no way of knowing what's going on. We have no way of knowing what's actually true and what's not. In real warfare, at least, you know, there, there are bombs that fall and they kill people, right? There, there are physical manifestations of war uh, that if someone is on the ground, you know, there, there are witnesses to this. Uh, there are victims, obviously. Uh, there are remnants of, uh, there's evidence that can be collected that things happened, right? Physical evidence. In the realm of cyber warfare, there is no such evidence. All the, all evidence exists as a log file, uh, as, as it's, it's, it's a text file on a server somewhere. And, you know, log files can be edited, obviously. And that information can be doctored or falsified. And so when we're presented with the evidence, we have to trust the experts that are presenting this evidence or, or, and are analyzing this, this evidence. And frequently, the cyber warfare experts that, 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 we, that we have today in America are very connected to the national security state. They're very connected to 
you know, Amer America's foreign policy apparatus. And so, it, 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 very frequently, there are privatized versions of that. And so, you know, it, 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 the way that I see cyber warfare is, 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 a, is, a, is a field that's very ripe for propaganda and, um, and uh, manipulation of public opinion. Because you can pretend like there's something horrible happened, right? I mean, we've had senators now talk about, um, you know, trolls on Facebook and, 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 and ads on Facebook being bought by, uh, by Russia as, the, as, the, as a digital Pearl Harbor, as worse than 9-11. Right. And so the, the image that we have of hackers and their ability to manipulate these systems and to cause havoc in the real world, you know, that could be uh, manipulated. That image could be manipulated to for propaganda purposes. And so I see actually the danger of cyber warfare, not even in the, in, in the danger of what that cyber warfare can achieve, you know, legitimately as, as an attack, but actually as as. The danger is in the propaganda aspects of it and in the ability to, to use cyber warfare and the fear of cyber warfare and the fear of cyber attacks to manipulate uh, pe people into doing things and to supporting policies and supporting wars and supporting uh, all sorts of bad things. And so um, that's, what, that's, that's my take on it. And finally, you know, at the end of your book, you have this really interesting epilogue where you have this reflection on the uh, Malthusian concentration camp. And you, you write that, quote, the story of Malthus and, and, and the IBM carries an important lesson about computer technology. So what is that lesson for you? Well, yeah, Malthus is a concentration camp that housed uh, several IBM uh, tabulators, um, machines that it was one of the earliest type of computer that um, uh, worked with punch cards and could uh, be used to uh, calculate uh, and do accounting and speed up speed up accounting um, and at the concentration camp these IBM machines uh, were uh, used to process um, slave labor um, and frequently slave labor made up of of, um, of German Jews and, or Jews from 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 Eastern Europe and and to me, when I, I went there, and of course, there's no mention of that the of of these um, IBM machines today at at, at the at, that, at the concentration camp. There's a little hit, there's a little museum, but there's no mention that they existed over there. But they did, and they helped the Germans, and they helped the Nazis speed up and and to run uh, a slave labor camp and to run it more efficiently. And to me, you know, uh, it was it's good to to go back there and to look at that place because it, it shows you that. Technology, there's nothing utopian about technology. There's nothing inherently progressive about computer technology. And that computer technology is an expression of whatever culture and whatever political culture created it and, and is putting it to use. And so for me, it's important to, it was important to look at that place because, you know, I'm not trying to say that the internet is like, you know, a, a Nazi death camp, um, although it sometimes feels that way. But I am saying that, you know, we have to understand that the Internet is a product of our culture and a product of our society and that it is going to be put to use in a, in a way that in, a, in, an, in accordance with that, the values of that society. And so our world, our, our, <clears throat> the Internet is dominated by spies, by militaries and by giant corporations because our world is dominated by, by them, by these forces. And so... Sometimes we, 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 when we think about the internet or we think about technology, we tend to think of it as something that stands above 
people, right? Um, but I, I think we need to bring it down and to situate it very firmly in our politics, in our culture, in our economies, um, and and to look at the internet um, in, in, in the same way that we would look at the oil industry, maybe, or the tobacco industry, is, is something that is an expression of uh, something that exists and comes out of uh, society. And because it, that is the only way we can really deal with it. Uh, it's a political creature. And, um, and so, yeah. That was Yasha Levine, a Russian-born American investigative journalist and a founding editor of The Exiled. His work has been published in The Baffler, Pando Daily, Wired, The Nation, Penthouse, and many others. He's the author of Surveillance Valley, The Secret Military History of the Internet, published by Public Affairs Books. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye!